Open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you were with us last week, you remember we uh, spent some time taking note of how people think of life after death. How many people often think of salvation, they think of life after death just as some sort of spiritual disembodied experience where we float in a ghost-like existence among the clouds. It's often pictured in, of course, classical art and even in popular literature and popular art today as some sort of cherub experience some sort of angelic experience, we gain our wings, as it were, and we float among the universe in some uh, otherworldly experience. But we've been seeing here in 1 Corinthians 15, but that, that, that kind of notion is far from God's plan and far from the testimony of Scripture. God's plan of salvation, as spelled out over and over again in Scripture, is not to remove us from the material world so that we can spend eternity in the non-material. God's plan is to redeem the material world, to transform it into its original design, and as a part of that transformation, to renew our bodies as well to their original design. Or to reverse all that, we might say the primary enemy of the plan of salvation is sin, And the primary effect of sin is death. And so if sin is truly defeated, it will mean that death is permanently eliminated. It will reverse death. And so there is no such thing as salvation, which includes sustained, ongoing death of our bodies. A salvation that doesn't reverse Death is a salvation that doesn't reverse sin, and so therefore it's no salvation at all. Salvation in biblical terms is a salvation then in a real bodily experience on a real material earth engaged in real material matters of life. That's a big picture of what Paul's laying out in 1 Corinthians It's the big picture of salvation that he's trying to defend here. It's the big picture of the gospel that he says that he preaches. And it is really what Paul is aiming at, even as he begins this chapter, with a vigorous defense, not of the resurrection in general, but the resurrection of Christ in particular, because that is the backbone or that is the foundation of the whole doctrine of the resurrection. And he's laying out, before he gets into the general specifics of your resurrection and my resurrection, he's laying out for us in the first 11 verses five reasons why you and I must believe, we must accept, we must hold to the resurrection of our Savior, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Five reasons which we began to enumerate last week. You remember, first of all, by noting that it's necessary for salvation Paul says in verse 1, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the gospel he reminds them about is the one, of course, that centers on the resurrection. That's what he'll go on to say. 
And his whole point is, if the resurrection is eliminated, the life-giving power of the gospel is eliminated, salvation is eliminated, and eternal life is eliminated. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. It couldn't be provided. It can't be sustained. Without belief in the resurrection, there is no salvation to be received. And the reasoning is very simple, and we pointed to it even in verses 12 and following, how Paul will come back to this and, and outline it in detail. Basically, if Christ was defeated by death, then sin, which causes death, remains undefeated. That is to say, if the death of the body of Christ was final, then his sacrifice was not. His sacrifice was insufficient. And so we often quote Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Because it's the cornerstone of what we believe. It's the cornerstone of the gospel of the defeat of sin. So believers cannot reject the resurrection because it's necessary for salvation. Also, Paul says, because it's declared by Scripture. In verse 3, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so the death and the resurrection of Christ indicated over and over again through prophecy in the Old Testament Paul says to reject that is to deny the very scriptures that we claim are so much at the heart of our faith. You can't deny the resurrection without denying those prophecies. You can't deny the resurrection without denying scripture. Thirdly, you can't deny the resurrection not only because it's the foundation of salvation, not only because it's declared by scripture, but thirdly, because it's proven by witnesses. I mean, numerous witnesses that Paul lists out for us here in verse, at the end of verse 5. He mentions Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And even he goes on to say he appears to James and to all the other apostles. An enormous amount of witnesses that almost any court of law would have considered to be overwhelming evidence in any case. Most of them, Paul says, are still alive at the point that he writes. They had been heard by many. Their testimonies had been scrutinized. Some of them had even given up their lives as a testimony of their belief in the resurrection. So Paul says this is compelling. It's compelling for anyone who really is seriously interested in the evidence. Now, someone might hear everything that Paul has said up to this point, and particularly about these witnesses, and they might conclude, well, that's to be expected, as if this is some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, that all of these disciples, all of these followers of Jesus, they were predisposed to believe this kind of sighting. They were the ones who were sort of like the the, 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 uh, the ones who pursue a, a Sasquatch or a Loch Ness monster. They're going and they're looking with, with um, 
primed expectation. And so any shadow, any apparition is bound to be interpreted by them in accordance with their preset beliefs. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not surprising, many would say, if they saw something because their hearts wanted to see something. Well, it would be hard to believe, of course, that well over 500 people would all fall victim to such wishful thinking, many of them willing to go on and give their lives for it. But even if you believe that these 500 witnesses were still so blinded by their own passions that they would do such a thing. You can't believe that about the next witness that Paul lists. And it's his fourth compelling reason why you can't reject the resurrection. And that is his own testimony. His own testimony. If you can't accept the witness, all the witnesses that Paul has mentioned, because they would have been too likely to have expected a resurrection, to have wanted a resurrection, then you certainly cannot say the same thing about Paul. He was the most unlikely candidate to become a witness of the resurrection. The most unlikely candidate to have become its greatest proponent and preacher. I mean, you might accuse every other witness that Paul has mentioned here of being too biased, too predisposed to want to believe the resurrection, but you could never accuse Paul of such a thing. He's absolutely the most unlikely person to be a defender, to be a witness of the resurrection. Because Paul was no loyal disciple sitting around looking for signs of some expected resurrection. He was just the opposite. He he was a hater of the church. He was an oppressor. He was a denier. He was a persecutor. He writes in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Christ appeared, or he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder or more than all of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. This comes as a a powerful witness. Perhaps more powerful than any of the others that Paul has mentioned so far. Because he was so unlikely. He, He was unlike any of them in the fact that he was the staunchest of unbelievers at the moment that he encountered the resurrected Christ. In fact, when he met the resurrected Christ, he was on a road traveling to a city called Damascus with the purpose of arresting and killing 
anyone who believed in this. It was such a dramatic and important testimony in the early church that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, either records or recounts the conversion of the Apostle Paul no less than three times in his brief history of the church. Acts 9, of course, the famous account of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Chapter 22, later on, he recounts Paul's own testimony. Or if you have your Bibles, flip over to Acts 26, where Paul gives again another recounting of these events. Speaking before Agrippa, a, uh, a Roman proconsul who had the power to free Paul, Paul begins to give his testimony. And he says in verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem and not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I will appear to you for this purpose. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things you've seen and to things which will appear to you. This is a... This is a not just a common theme, we would say it's a backbone of Luke's message in the book of Acts. It it is something he comes to over and over and over again as one of the most powerful testimonies and witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. I mean, we we all recognize the power of when a hater becomes an advocate of any cause. And this is what Paul was. He hated Christianity. He hated Christians. And he hated the Lord. He describes himself as opposing the name of Jesus and persecuting the church. But even in spite of all of that, we're told that God chose Paul. And chose to reveal himself to Paul on the road to Damascus in his resurrected body. And it becomes one of the greatest demonstrations of grace ever shown. Pretty amazing fact, really, in Paul's mind. He mentions it again and again in 
his epistles, he can't believe, first of all, that he had been rescued from such blindness. And he can't believe that on top of all of that, that God had placed him in the ministry. First Timothy chapter 1 Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And when he's talking about God considered me faithful, he's not saying that God looked down on him, the hater and the persecutor and the murderer and the oppressor, and somehow saw there a picture of faithfulness. He's talking about God's declaration of him. He could have just as well said, God considered me perfect, or God considered me holy, or God considered me worthy, none of which were true. But the point is that God treated Paul as if he had been faithful. He treated him in a way that he didn't deserve. He treated him as if he'd been faithful, even though he had not. He treated him that way. He considered him that way. He thought of him that way. And therefore, the outcome is he placed him in service. That's why Paul goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He considers me faithful, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So God treats him with this kind of kindness. God treats him with this kind of grace. God treats him as if he had been faithful, even though he was the exact opposite. Even though he was an antagonist and a violent aggressor, a hater of Christ and a hater of Christians. Paul was the last person on the face of the earth who should have been entrusted with the gospel or with the ministry. I mean, we we take someone like this, we take someone who has been such an opponent of God and such a rebel against his cause, and if they were to come into our midst and they were to approach us and want some kind of level of leadership, we would rightly understand that it takes a long time for them to earn their credibility, right? We would have all kinds of suspicions. We would have all kinds of doubts. We would have all kinds of questions about such a person. Paul understood all these things. He understood that he had proven himself the most untrustworthy. And yet God considered him trustworthy. God placed him in the ministry and strengthened him to fulfill it. Never so unworthy a person to be entrusted with the gospel. Never so unworthy a person to be considered worthy. And so Paul says, as he says in 1 Timothy over and over again, I am so thankful. And he says he was shown mercy acting in his unbelief. And then in verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord was more abundant, more than abundant with faith and love, which are found in Jesus Christ. Hooper epilenason, he says. Hooper 
eplanason, super abundant was the grace of the Lord. It was the context of that verse from which John Bunyan gets the, the phrase for his famous work, the uh, grace abounding to the chief of sinners, his own personal autobiography. Paul's saying, look, God's grace just, it was super abounding or it exceeded all boundaries. It exceeded all expectations. It went far beyond what anyone could have ever expected. Far beyond the deep pit of my sin. Far beyond my own hatred of Christ. Far beyond my own blasphemy. Far far beyond my own guilt. Far beyond my own aggression. Far beyond anything I deserved. So abundant that the greatest enemy of the gospel would actually be entrusted with the gospel. It would have been gracious, of course, for God just to let Paul be forgiven for his blasphemy, to be forgiven for his opposition. It would have been gracious of God to allow him to simply go on living without striking him dead. It would have been gracious of God simply to... to, uh, Uh, allow him to enter into heaven. And it would have been a magnificently beautiful testimony, something that he could have written volumes about. It would have been gracious for God to allow him even to be a witness to a few people, maybe even to see some uh, come to eternal life because of his testimony when he formerly had been their murderer. But the grace superabounded, went way beyond all the boundaries to put Paul into ministry. And not only that, as an apostle. There's no explanation for that. There's no explanation for that. There's no explanation for what God's done in your life. There's none. I mean, you might sit around and think that God saw something in you. He saw nothing more in you than he saw in Paul. If he declared you faithful, it was a work of his grace. If he considered you worthy, it wasn't because of any of your worthiness. It was because of his grace. And Paul says, my whole life was transformed. From the inside out, I became a completely new creature. In fact, he goes on in in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says, look, I I, I can't explain all of this. I don't give all of the, I don't have all the understanding why God would take me, a rebel, a darkened soul, and show me this kind of grace. But I know one reason, I know one reason, because he wanted to have above every other witness to the resurrection, he wanted to have one that super abounded them all. He wanted to have one person that it was beyond anybody's ability to doubt that it was absolutely God's miraculous grace that saved him. That's why he saved me, the chief of sinners, Paul says. 
Listen, if the Lord is so patient, so long-suffering with the vile, with the blaspheming, with the slanderous, with the persecuting, with the outrageous, religious, hypocrite like Paul, if he's so patient as to wait for that person to endure all of the indignities, to endure all of the rebellion, to endure all of the hatred, to redeem a person like that and to let him not only be redeemed, but to let him be in ministry and not only to be in ministry, to be an apostle and not just an apostle, but to write the majority of the New Testament books who was the worst sinner in the world. No one is beyond the reach of grace. No one. That's the whole point. So saving Paul was proof positive that the Lord can save anyone. That the Lord can save anyone and he can use them. Come back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says there in verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now we understand the power of that testimony. Now we understand that this is the most unlikely person. To be writing to you. And to be standing before others. Saying that Jesus was the one who rose from the dead. The most unlikely candidate. Not only that, it also came at the most unlikely time. It came at the most unlikely time. Paul says in verse 8, Christ appeared him last of all as one untimely born. That phrase, untimely born, ectroma is the word, usually refers to miscarriages or premature births to sometimes stillborn children, to those who couldn't live outside of the womb for whatever reason. And Paul may be using this as a term of derision, that is to say, referring to his own useless and lifeless self, something in the minds of the Greeks, uh, this ectroma word that was worthy of nothing to be, but to be thrown out. He could have said, that's all I was. Or he could have been talking about the process of gestation, saying that all these other witnesses make sense in one regard. They were with the Lord. They sat under his teaching. They heard him talk about his resurrection over and over again. They had been with him for years. They heard his promises. They saw him unfold the prophecies of the Old Testament. They were all brought up, we would say, with the proper kind of nourishment, the proper kind of growth, the proper kind of evolution, the proper kind of development, if you will, in the womb of faith. But Paul wasn't anything like that. He was born without all that background. He was born without all that proper development. He was born, in that sense, premature. Whether he's talking about this in terms of derision or whether he's talking about this in terms of not having the proper time, all of this 
really makes the same point that the Lord's appearance to him was unique. It wasn't like anyone else's. For all of them, Jesus not only had promised his resurrection, but he appeared to them immediately after he rose from the grave. Died on the cross, he was buried, he rose on the third day, and he was with them, we're told, for 40 days. Teaching, encouraging, reminding them of all that he had taught them. And then finally, he ascended into heaven in his body while these witnesses, more than 500 of them, watched. But Paul was never a part of that group. He didn't share any of those experiences. He never saw the Lord during any of those times. He never had any reason from any of that to ever expect or hope for a resurrected Lord. His encounter with Jesus, in fact, would come years later, three to four years after all of that. After the church had already begun, after the Lord had already descended, after many had already died because of their faith, at that point, Paul would see the resurrected body of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the way he phrases it here makes it clear that this was the final experience. Last of all, he says, I'm the final one. He makes it clear that there is a definite sequence and that this sequence has come to an end. Paul didn't know anyone other who had this experience of seeing the Lord and he didn't expect any other person to ever experience seeing him again. What he saw, what happened in his life was a special measure of grace for the sake of of his apostleship. There are some people who suggest that Paul's experience on the road to Damascus was just some sort of vision, some sort of purely spiritual experience, some intense inner emotional moment where he saw something he might have seen with the eyes of his heart, the eyes of his mind. He encountered God maybe only in his spirit. And we're told by these so-called theologians, that this is what we all are supposed to seek. We're all supposed to have this kind of encounter with Jesus. But Paul doesn't speak about his experience in that way. He doesn't speak about it as some, uh, some uh, deal that everyone is supposed to expect or everyone is supposed to have. He groups it with the same kinds of unique experiences that the other apostles have, He groups it in a category different from every other Christian or from what they have experienced or will experience. Remember back in chapter 9, verse 1, he had said, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Meaning that not everyone has seen him. Not everyone, therefore, is an apostle. Paul clearly saw himself in a sequence. And that sequence has come to an end. No one else will see the resurrected Lord. No matter what someone might tell you about how they saw Christ, how they saw the Lord, how they had some visitation from Christ, 
how he how he appeared before them or stood beside them or called out their name or whatever it might be. Paul considers himself to be the last person to whom this happened. So he's an unlikely candidate and it came at an unlikely time, long after the ascension of Christ. And then finally, Paul wants us to know the unlikely outcome of this whole series of happenings. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked more. I worked, ESV says, harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. Basically, he's pointing to the amazing work that God had done in him. God not only saved him, God had shown amazing grace to call him to be an apostle. And he says it's all of God's doing. When Paul thinks of his ministry then, he doesn't think of personal talents. He doesn't think of personal Ability. He doesn't think of even his rabbinic training or his great intellect or his mind or any of those things. He doesn't think of his rights. He doesn't think of his accolades. He doesn't think of his, uh, of his personality. He doesn't think of any of that. He, he simply thinks of God's grace to work within him. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over a couple of books to the book of Ephesians. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to what? The gift of God's grace which is given to me by the working of His power, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's Paul's description of the way that he thought about his ministry. Grace given to him to preach to the Gentiles. And all of this was a gift. All of this a demonstration of God's inexplicable kindness. That's the way he describes his ministry back over in 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he adds, and this grace toward me wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So this is his primary, primarily a statement about his ministry. It could be said, of course, about his life. Could be said about any of our lives. God's grace saves us. And every good thing that comes into your life is a work of grace. So that at the end, anyone who boasts will boast in the Lord. Paul had already said it back in chapter 1. That by Christ's doing, we are in Him who has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, so if you have justification, if you have righteousness, or if you have sanctification, he says it is of his doing. 
So Paul could certainly say this of his own personal life, but his statement here is not primarily about his life, it's about his ministry. And what he's saying is God's grace made him what he is, a preacher of the gospel, and it was not in vain. In fact, in fact, God allowed him or God caused him to work in greater ways than all of the others. Now, Paul could be referring to the fact that he simply outworked the other apostles and yet still wants to give God the credit for creating that kind of intensity within him. Or he could be referring to the scope of his work, the fact that it surpassed all of the other apostles combined. That is, he could be referring to the fact that in general, all the other apostles were called and served among the Jews, primarily in Israel. But Paul had been appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles and ended up being the primary catalyst to take the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire. This is normally the way Paul speaks of his own ministry in relation to the other apostles. Remember over in Galatians 2, Paul says in verse 7, the leaders in the Jerusalem church, quote, saw or, or recognized that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through mine for the Gentiles. And this was, if Paul had any tendency to draw attention to, or we would say boast about his ministry, this was his boast. Not so much in his effort, as much in the scope of his ministry. Look over at 2 Corinthians, excuse me, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 15. Romans 15 and verse 18. Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, this is my boast. This is what I'll speak about. If I'll speak about anything, I'll speak about the scope of my ministry. I'll speak about the fact that God has used me all the way from Jerusalem and spanning across the Roman Empire to Illyricum, God has used me in all of these lands. Now, now over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 13, Paul says there, We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not want to boast beyond the limit in the labors of others. Our hope is that 
as your faith increases, our area of influence among you will be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. All of this is most likely what Paul means when he says back over in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked more than all of them. The word perisoteron literally means in excess. It simply means to exceed something. And so Paul is just simply saying, my labor exceeded all of theirs. My labor exceeded all of theirs. Could be a reference to his personal efforts, although some struggle to see how that would be really in any way humble of Paul as some sort of thinly veiled boasting and, and, and applauding himself above these others. I think it's more likely Paul's point is the fact that not only had God chosen him a filthy, rotten sinner, and not only had God placed him in the ministry, and not only had God made him an apostle, but as a testimony to the depth and the breadth and the strength and the power of the grace that can save any sinner, God made him the apostle who had the broadest scope, the furthest reach, and whose work outpaced all of the others as a, as a word, as a witness of the power of God. That even he, a persecutor and a blasphemer, God could do even this. Inexplicable grace, unimaginable kindness, untold power, the most unlikely person at the most unlikely time, in the most unlikely way, or we would say with the most unlikely results. And he comes to us as a powerful, compelling, confirming witness of the resurrection. One final reason, then, why we can't reject the resurrection, not only because of all these things, because of the necessity of it for salvation, because of the, the, the testimony of it from Scripture, because of the testimony of all these witnesses, and, and, and even of Paul himself, but finally, because of its centrality to preaching. Because of its centrality to preaching. You simply cannot preach the gospel if you don't preach the resurrection. You can't. Paul says it plainly in verse 11, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Meaning, of course, that they preached the resurrection. That what they preached and what the Corinthians heard and what they believed and the gospel by which they were saved was the resurrection. That the one who professes with his mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, that is the one who, who is saved. That is the gospel that is heard. That is the gospel that transforms. We often talk about being witnesses for God. I'm afraid in our modern world, we've so muddied up 
that term that most Christians now think that their primary task is to go around and tell other people their personal story of how God changed you. Well, listen, tell people your personal story, but don't imagine that telling them your personal story is telling them the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born into this world, lived a perfect life, and died innocently a death on behalf of those that he would save. And as a validation that God had accepted his sacrifice and removed sin forever, he rose Christ, he raised Christ from the dead in the body and took him to be forever bodily with him in heaven. And if you're going to be a witness of any kind, your witness can't be your personal story. You are a witness to the resurrection of Christ. Or more like it, you are a witness to the witness of the resurrection of Christ given to us in Scripture by the apostles. You're giving a testimony to the testimony of those who saw him. You're declaring what they declared to you, as the writer of Hebrews says. And when you do that, you are a faithful witness. When you do that, you are fulfilling what the Lord commanded in Matthew 28. When you do that, you're finally evangelizing. Paul says, this is what was preached to you. And his implication is that this was the uniform testimony of the apostles. And you don't have to have even this. You can just open up the book of Acts, as we said last week, and just read the sermons, read the testimony, read their evangelism. And what you find is that over and over and over again, they are confronting people with the reality of the resurrection of Christ. They're confronting them with the reality of that. Demanding, demanding that they make a judgment. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in this man, Jesus? Do you believe that he died a perfect life? Do you believe that as a, as a testimony that God had accepted his life as a sacrifice for sins, do you believe that he conquered death? Because if you believe he conquered death, then you know he conquered sin. And you know if he conquered sin, you know he can offer salvation. And if you know he conquered sin, you know he can conquer your death. You know he can give you eternity. You can't reject it. You can't do away with it. You can't run from it. If you're a Christian, you can't do without it. If you're an unbeliever, you can't deny it. If you have any serious mind to understand the truth, you can't deny the compelling witness of so many. You can't deny the compelling testimony of a life like Paul's, changed by the power of the resurrection. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here today and you don't know Christ,
God has brought you here for this moment. I'm absolutely convinced. God has you here because he wants you to hear the gospel. God has you here because he has called you to believe. This is the call of God to all the nations to repent of your sin and believe on him. And you've heard the gospel today and for you to walk out today still in your unbelief and still hardened in your heart against God is for you to walk out with the full weight of all of that rejection, the full weight of all of that sin on your own head. You don't want to face God that way. He's here today among His people. He's here today in His Word. He's here today in His Spirit. And He's here today calling you to eternal life, a life that He can provide because of the Savior that He gave. So when we close in a word of prayer, I want to invite you, if you don't know Christ, come see me. Please, please come see me. I'd love to be able to show you from the scripture how your life can be transformed just like Paul's and how you can have eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning, thankful for the word of God, thankful for the gospel that is proclaimed, thankful for the resurrection. Thank you so much for the testimony of grace that you gave to us in the apostle. Lord, he was a hater. He was a blasphemer. He was an insolent man. But what a work of mercy. What a work of power. What a demonstration of your kindness. And even in us, Lord, how great has been your kindness to us. How great has been your work. We too say with him, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for your magnanimous grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.